But open your Bibles to the book of Romans this morning, Romans chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 15 and 17 today, actually verses 16 and 17. Verse 15 is really the on-ramp. One of the most helpful books I believe that John MacArthur ever wrote is actually titled after our text this morning. It's, it's called Ashamed of the Gospel. There, there are two others, I think, that fall into the category of, of must-read that, that John wrote. The, the other two are uh, The Gospel According to Jesus and Charismatic Chaos. Uh, if you've read any of MacArthur's books, you, you know that they're simply expositions of his sermons that somebody's put an introduction and a conclusion to. But I think those three are worthy of, of your attention because they summarize, they deal with some watershed doctrines that that every Christian must deal with. Um, you have to decide whether Jesus is just Savior or whether He's Savior and Lord, meaning He's God over your life. And, and you have to decide what to do with the sign gifts. Uh, have they ceased? Have they not? And, and, and what, what do you see in charismatic or Pentecostal churches around you? Is that legitimate or, or is it not? Charismatic chaos will help you greatly there. And and the last, um, what is a biblical philosophy of ministry? What does it look like to do church? Does the Bible have some directives related to that? And Ashamed of the Gospel is particularly helpful in that third category because it traces the trends in modern evangelicalism over three decades ago. It's still relevant today. It explains why there are so many churches in America with so little transforming power. I mean, like this morning, there are thousands and thousands of people that, that are gathered in large and small buildings under many different denominational names, some of them no denominational name at all. And, and while that's true, the, in a lot of places, the people inside are, are, are not even slightly different from the, the culture around them or the people that, that didn't gather. Um, they call themselves Christians, but they lack the aroma of Christ. They lack the transforming power of, uh, of the gospel. And, and in his book, John shows the primary way that that, that happened, at least in, in modern American church. The, the modern church is ashamed of the gospel. That's what he argues. It says one thing, and then it does something something else. Uh, he argues churches say they're about the gospel of Jesus Christ, but, but then when they gather, they, they hardly mention it or, or rarely utilize it. Their programs and approaches are use everything but the gospel to, to reach people. When you, even though they may mention the name of Jesus and even his death and resurrection, when you strip away all the externals, whether they realize it or not, or whether there's a bad motive there or not, uh, these churches don't offer much more than psychological self-help uh, or moral lessons without any real power to, uh, to carry them out. They're the ultimate form of false advertising. Out front, they say church, meaning inside is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Enter here. But then when you go inside, you know, all you get is more of what is available outside, just with a Christian name. And it's not an American phenomenon. It's not, even, it's not even new. It's what Charles Spurgeon 
faced in the downgrade controversy, and you can find it in many other places in church history as well. But one of those moments was, was not whenever the Apostle Paul wrote the letter to the Romans. <laughs> From the very first verse of this great epistle, Paul makes plain the message that he preached is centered on the worth and work of Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul's motto for ministry was, I know nothing but Christ and Him crucified. I mean, that's his bumper sticker. And Paul front loads that here in, in the book of Romans in the same bold font in verses 16 and 17. Now, it, we're still in the, the very first section, which is Paul's introduction to the gospel of God's righteousness. I don't expect you to write this down. I just put it up there to show you where we're at. You're, we're coming to the end of this first section. Verse 17, we'll finish today. And, and we've looked at verses 1 through 7 where Paul introduces himself and he introduces the message that he proclaims. And, and then right after that introduction, we saw last week that he explains the reason that he's writing in verses 8 through 15. Uh, Paul per, uh, portrays the purpose of of his writing in, in, with several personal expressions about, uh, about the believers in Rome. Pa- Paul's saying, I'm giving God thanks because he's fulfilling the Old Testament promise to, to save the Gentiles. I mean, there are uh, Gentile Christians in Rome, and, and you're part of them, and I give God thanks for that, and I'm praying I can come and be part of, of what God's doing there. And specifically, when I come, I wanted... I desire to impart to you some spiritual gift and be encouraged by you as well. And I'm informing you uh, why I haven't been able to come yet. I've wanted to, but God's providence has prohibited me. But I'm still seeking to come because I'm a divine debtor. I'm obligated to, to preach the, the gospel to all, to all Jews and all Gentiles, which includes you in Rome. But I'm not only obligated, I'm eager to, to come. It is a word that means predisposed to something. Uh, prothumos. It's, a, it's my heart is, is lunging in your direction. The, 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 the root of that is, is the word for anger or, or wrath. It, wrath in our hearts like a bubbling cauldron. And it's there and it's popping up and it's coming. Paul's saying that my heart's doing the opposite of that. The desire is to be there where you're at. And when I start thinking about it and praying about it, my heart just oozes. It just, it just bubbles up toward, toward, toward you. And the reason that I'm eager is because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And then in verses 16 and 17, Paul presents the central theme of his letter. Uh, the, li- uh, the literary term for these two verses is, uh, is where we get the word proposition. It's his thesis statement. It's, it's what Paul is saying, I'm going to argue and defend in the rest of the letter. I mean, we call it the subject verses of the book because it foreshadows the major themes that, that are coming, one right after the other in, in the next 11 chapters. I mean, things like salvation has come. For all who believe that, that, that Jews and Gentiles have a place in God's plan of salvation and that God is revealing His righteousness through it. Uh, the simplified theme, we said, is the, the gospel of God's righteousness. And Paul's going to say today that, that that gospel of God's righteousness saves. And it's something that Paul says 
he's not he's not ashamed to declare. When I when I hear the word ashamed, I I can't help it. My I think of a moment whenever I was a young believer, maybe within a year or so after I was saved. Uh, I can remember watching, I mean vividly, I can still see it in my mind. Uh, I saw a man mockingly sweeping a, a gospel track in a pile of dirt. And, and I remember seeing that. I didn't know the man. He doesn't know me. He just had this snide look on his face when he was doing it. And, and I felt this desire to bend down in front of him and, and pick that gospel track up and dust it off like it was precious treasure. But I didn't. I picked it up after he walked away, and, and I'm still ashamed to this day that I did it, even though I was a young believer and, and, and even didn't know a whole lot. It was just, a, just an unction that I had that I, that I didn't act on. And the temptation of Paul's day is, is not much different from ours. I mean, just as our world and, uh, views the message of Christianity with contempt, it's... Uh, it's Neanderthal if you believe the Bible and the Bible alone. You believe this ancient book. It's, it's unscientific. It's, you know, you believe that rather than evolution. And people in Paul's day viewed the message of Christ as uneducated and foolish as well. I mean, the Romans believed that they were so religiously sophisticated that they even considered Christians as atheists. They because Christians didn't believe in a God that you could see and, or believe that that God was, was, was about wisdom because their gods were, were, were really just a, a, a glorified man and, and you want to you become like the gods. And so the message that, that Christ is, is, is the wisdom of God and that, that he came to say, that was preposterous to the Greeks. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of that of that message. And in fact, Paul was writing this letter to the very heart of the, the Roman world, the very seat of worldly power. And it wasn't just the Gentiles or the Greeks. I mean, to believe that a conquering Messiah, the conquering Messiah that was, that was promised was an unknown carpenter's son from Nazareth who died as a criminal on a Roman cross so it was scandalous to the Jews. I mean, how could he be the one that was to conquer their Roman oppressors whenever he was conquered by them. At least that was what it seemed in their mind. He was put to death. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed to tell them either. And so it is in our day. I mean, to believe that there is a God, there's only one God, and he's not the God that you design or that you make up, but he's the God from the pages of Scripture, objective propositional truth fixed, He's defined who he is, and you can't redefine him. To believe that there's that God, and that God says that you and I have sinned, and we've sinned against him, and, and, and that can't be washed away, and, except that believing that that God came in the flesh 2,000 years ago, and, and he shed his blood on a cross, and that by simply trusting in him and, and trusting in that message alone, what he did through his death, that will provide eternal life for you and save you from eternal fire, a, a real, literal place. That is unbelievable to most people. It will, it's mocked by most people. But to us who are being saved, it is the wisdom of God and the power of God, isn't it? I mean, we just know it. It's true. 
I mean, nobody has to convince you that the Bible is the Word of God if you're a believer. Nobody has to convince you that these are the words of Christ. You just know. And the central message of the New Testament is, is that very true? The message that the Apostle Paul preached without mediation or muting. The, the gospel, as you know, means good news. It's news because it was a literal event that, that took place in, in history, and it's being reported to you. In fact, God has commanded that it be reported to you, to all people. I mean, the gospel is not opinion journalism. It's hard news, and it's good because it informs us about how we can be rescued from the bad news. And the bad news is you're on a collision course with a holy God apart from Christ. And you'll never understand the gospel or come to Christ unless you understand that you need to be rescued from something. And, and it's not just something. That, that something's not a what. It's a who. It, you need to be saved from God. And, and only God can save you from himself. You can't save yourself from God. And so matter, no matter how sophisticated or religious that you think you are, you will stand before your Creator who is an all-consuming fire, and you will be judged, or Christ will have already been judged in your, your place. And on that day, all those who trusted in Jesus will not be ashamed, but they'll be vindicated. And those who have rejected Him will be sent into everlasting darkness. One brother said, The gospel is good news, because it's the only way that leads to God without going through the courtroom. I like that. I mean, everyone will reach God, but most will meet Him there as judge, seated on the bench. But for those who approach Him through the gospel, the trial is already over and the verdict has been rendered and completely satisfied. And Paul went to Rome eager to preach that gospel. And he could have went to Rome desiring to do a lot of other things. I mean, it's the seat of political power. It, there was Jewish persecution. He could have cared for the, uh, the poor, reset up the Jews that, that now have been allowed to come back in. But he went there determined to do one thing. Paul marched upon Rome with one weapon. Paul had one bullet in his gun, and that was it. The gospel of Jesus Christ, because he knew that was the only power Dr. Joel James said, and he didn't hide the gospel in his luggage. It wasn't even in his carry-on. He carried it openly. Paul open-carried into the middle of Rome, strapped to his side the gospel of Jesus Christ, unashamed. That's what the word eagerness applies, implies. It, he's got it in his hand. It's unsheathed, and he's ready to wield it. He says he's not ashamed of, of this message, and then he, he tells us why in, in our verses. Tom Schreiner said, you can't stop by saying the theme of Romans is the gospel because Paul didn't stop there. You have to say the theme is, uh, of Romans is the gospel of God's righteousness that saves and, and that it saves by, by faith alone. That's what Paul's eager to preach. Let me show you how he argues this before we, before we break it down. Look, if you would, at verse 16. I want you to notice that verse 16 starts with the word for. That means it's connected to something. For I am not ashamed of the, the gospel. It, it's not connected to verse 14 where Paul says he's obligated because he has an apostolic calling. It's, it's connected to verse 15. So look at verse 15. So for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are also in Rome. And here's why. That's what he's saying. 
And then what follows is a, is a chain of arguments which, which shows why he's eager to preach. And, and each phrase builds on itself to uh, making his point clearer and clearer. Here's why I'm eager to preach, because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And there are two more fours in here. There's two more becauses. Uh, look at the rest of verse 16. For it is the power of God for salvation or unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And here's the second one, or the third one. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And there's one more phrase. Just as, or as it is written. So it goes like this. This is Paul's argument. Paul is eager to preach the gospel in Rome because he's not ashamed of the gospel. He's not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God bringing the salvation to all who believe. The gospel is the saving power of God because the righteousness of God, His righteousness that's gifted to us, is revealed in it by faith. And then in verse 17, that truth is not new, just as it is found in the Old Testament. It's the way that's always been. It's always been by faith. It's always been God supplying His righteousness to us, not us becoming righteous as, as individuals. Which says the, that quote of the Old Testament says, the righteous become so and enjoy eternal life by, by faith. So, so what we have here is Paul giving us three reasons why you should put your full confidence in the, the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. Or, or three confident reasons you should not be ashamed of it. Number one, because the gospel is God's invincible power. Number two, because it reveals God's redeeming righteousness. And number three, because it's been demonstrated by God from the beginning. That's in verse 17. And the first reason you should put your trust in the gospel is because it's God's invincible power. And it has a saving purpose and it has a universal scope. Look if you would at verse 15. For, so for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in, in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the, the gospel. Paul makes a declaration here. He makes a declaration about the gospel. He says it has a saving purpose and it has a, a universal scope. But, but, but he starts with this, this idea of being ashamed. And, and Paul means something more than, than just psychological here or, or like, like we would think. He's not saying I'm, I'm unembarrassed uh, uh, about the message I think that's what we think of whenever we hear the word ashamed, like, like I'm afraid, I'm feeling nervous about sharing Jesus with somebody. Uh, while that feeling may be there if you share Christ, and Paul talked about fear and trepidation at times whenever he, he faced foes, Paul means more than that. He, Paul is actually echoing the words of, of Jesus here. Look at how, or watch how Jesus uses this this idea of, of shame or being ashamed in, in Mark 8. Mark 8, 34 through 38. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but who loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So Jesus is talking about becoming his follower, be, be, becoming his disciple. And what's what he says next? For whoever, he's explaining, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of when he comes in the, the glory of his Father with his holy angels. The word means to bear witness, to unreservedly claim, to resolutely ascribe. Uh, Paul means when he says to not be ashamed of Christ, it means to claim him before opponents, before opposition, or the suffering that, that they can bring. And Jesus said, if we have that kind of fidelity to, to him and his message, then he will claim us or bear witness of us when, when we stand before the Father. He'll claim us as his followers. Yes, they were my followers. And Paul says, I'm eager to bear that kind of witness to Christ and to his claims. You may do that with fear and trepidation, but you still do it, like Paul. And he says, I have no hesitancy to, to stake my, my, put my stake there. That, that's the ground of my message. Uh, I have no hesitancy to do that. Regardless of what comes, that, that's not what matters to me. I might not enjoy it, but, but because he's already claimed me, that's where I stake my claim. It's exactly what he says in, in 2 Timothy as well. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. He, he says the same thing in verse 12. For, for this reason I also suffer these things, but I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. I know where I've staked my claim, and, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted him until that day. What day? The day that Jesus talked about, the day in which you'll stand before the Father, and you'll either be in Christ or out of Christ. And then he explains why. Look at verse 16. He says, I'm eager because I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God. He, he furthers the argument. He he says it's the power of God. He's not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God. He doesn't say the gospel contains power. He doesn't say it is powerful or that it exerts power. He says it is power. And it's power, the power of God, uh, power that belongs to, to, to Him, power that is characterized by divine qualities. The source of this power is, is from God. Paul says there's transforming power that, that accompanies the, the, the message that he has. The preaching of the good news. It affects things. I'm not ashamed of it because the power of God, it is the power of God. God's power to save is active in the gospel. Now, I think it's easy for you and I to read this, this verse that we've probably memorized in some Sunday school and miss the significance of what he's saying. But think about it. Think of it this way. When you share the gospel with someone, like Paul did, and you say to them, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He, he's God in flesh, and He came to save you from your sin, and, and He died on a cross to bear your penalty and rose from the dead. When, 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 you, when you say that, those are just words that you speak. But if the person hears that and believes, that, then their eternal destiny is changed. 
I mean, that's power. And Paul says those words, that message, unleashed this power. God's invested his power in the the gospel truth. Unfortunately, sometimes we we read that word power and and then we go to a Strong's Concordance and we realize that it's from the the Greek word dunamis and we try to explain it with the English word dynamite. Like the gospel is is like dynamite, but that is so insufficient for what Paul is saying here. Besides that, it's doing etymology in the backwards, in the the wrong way. You don't determine what a Greek word means by, by an English word. I mean, what can you compare to the power of God? I mean, it's much more potent than dynamite. It must be more powerful than anything that you and I can conjure up. Because think of what the gospel must accomplish for for you and for me. It must call dead people to life. It must reconcile man to God. It must remove condemnation. I mean, the gospel must have the power uh, to to remove the, the slavery of sin, which has captured you and It keeps you from caring, even caring about God. I mean, it has to translate you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son. I mean, it has to have the power to change kingdoms. It cleanses your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. I mean, the gospel has the power to remove guilt that you know is true. I mean, you know that you're guilty. You know what you've done and but not with a psychological trick where where you don't just think about it anymore or you change the definition of sin to sickness or something else. I mean, the gospel literally removes the stain of guilt. I mean, it takes it away so that your conscience no longer condemns you because you know you're free. I mean, that is power. It's not only that kind of power, but it has the power to bring the dead to life, and even beyond that, it has the power of recreation. I mean, we are made a new creation in Christ Jesus. We're, we're recreated in Him. The same creative power that was there in Genesis 1 is found in the gospel. It has the ability to create out of nothing. There's nothing in us that's attractive to God. God has nothing to work with whenever He looks at me and you. He has nothing. He creates something out of nothing. And then the gospel does that. Simply by decree. God speaks and new uh, spirits are created. He doesn't need evolution like Genesis doesn't need evolution. He doesn't need the process of moral reform or enlightenment to save you. The gospel has the power to, to create instantaneously. As we sing, Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light, my chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. It's the power of the gospel. It has the power to change a sinner into a saint. It it has the power to take someone who hates God and hates the light and turn them into somebody that delights in the law of God and longs to be in God's presence. It has the power to take somebody like you or me that had absolutely no interest whatsoever in the Bible you thought church was the last place on the planet you would want to be, and it will move you to buy a Bible and read it on your own, even when you have better things to do in the morning and want to gather with God's people. It has that kind of power. It takes away an old man and makes a new man. It removes your, your mind of enmity and gives you the mind of Christ. It changes your spiritual family and your parent to 
You were once a child of wrath, and now you're a child of God, an heir to the king, a brother to Christ. You once had the devil as your father, and now God is your father. It changes your eternal destiny. You were once as, as sure as in hell as you're sitting here this morning, and, and now you're going to spend eternity in heaven as sure as if you're already there. It has that kind of power. It has the power to take a thief and make him a man that works with his hands so he can give to others. It can take an adulterer and make him a one-woman man. It can wash a homosexual as clean as the driven snow. It, it, it can change a leopard's spots. It can turn a slave to sin into a preacher. It can make a drunk filled with the Spirit. It can take any list of sin that you can think of and declare such were some of you, but you have been washed, you have been sanctified past tense. It has that kind of power. That's way more powerful than dynamite, isn't it? That's the power of the gospel. And that power has a saving purpose. Look at verse 16 again. I'm not ashamed of it, for it's the power of God unto salvation. Notice it's power unto something. It's not just indiscriminate power. God's just releasing His power. It's power unto an end. God's power results in salvation. Ace in the the Greek, uh, the power has a saving purpose, meaning it accomplishes exactly what God desires and exactly what what He designs. It's it's exactly what He says in a verse that you probably know very well. So my word will, will be which goes forth from my mouth, it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire. That's the idea here. It accomplishes exactly what I intended to accomplish. I mean, God's gospel does not contain empty words either. That's what Paul's saying. It has power unto something. It it unleashes that transforming power that I just spoke about, and it will do the saving work that he intends to do. That's why Paul is not ashamed of it. That's why he's eager to preach it. He knows that it will accomplish exactly what God intended for it to accomplish. And Paul's saying he's not ashamed of it because in the proclamation of Jesus Christ that he is the Son, the saving Son and the risen Lord, God's power is expressed. These are strong words here. It's a strong conjunction. It's, a, it's confidence-granting words. Paul's not simply saying that the preaching of the gospel simply makes salvation possible. That's not what he's saying. The word means it's actually effective. It's not just potent. It achieves. (laughs) The gospel doesn't just invite. Surely it does that, but it does way more than that, what Paul's saying. It actually calls and woos and draws and convicts and saves and everything else that's in salvation. And that happens in those who, who are called by it. Look at how Paul takes this, this parallel idea and says the same thing in 1 Corinthians and 1 Thessalonians. Look at 1 Corinthians 18. Paul uses the same phrase here. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He says the message of the cross is the power of God to us who are being saved. And and then he tells us who's being saved. Who's he talking about? Verses 23 and 24 of that same chapter. 
But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. That's who he's talking about. That's who the power is unleashed to, to bring into the kingdom. Look at how he does the same thing in 1 Thessalonians. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you, and here's our little word for, here's an explanation of how you can know his choice of you. Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction, meaning complete belief. I mean, the Thessalonians, Paul says, you, you can know that you're elect because Paul, Paul's gospel accomplished its purpose. When I preached it, it, its power affected you. It didn't just come in words only. You heard the words and you didn't just say, yeah, yeah, whatever. You believed. That power by the Holy Spirit accomplished that, that work in you, which was God's purpose. And Paul's saying to, to the Romans, that's why I'm eager to preach it. That's why I'm unashamed of it. And then he defines that, who that power is unleashed on, just like he does in 1 Corinthians. It's on those who believe. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, and that includes all kinds of people. So you look at verse 16 uh, again. Paul now turns to the universal reach of the gospel. He says it has power, and that power is unto salvation. It has a saving purpose, and, and that gospel has a universal reach. He says salvation is effective for everyone who believes, and, and then he describes who he means by everyone, both Jews and Gentiles, so to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I mean, Paul acknowledges... Uh, the privilege of the Jewish people. And, and, but then he says, don't, don't limit who it's offered to. I mean, the Jewish people are God's chosen people. They're, they're God's elect people. And Deuteronomy tells us that, that that wasn't because they were righteous or smarter than anybody else. It was, it, it was God's grace. They received the covenants. They received the promises. And so they received the gospel first. They received priority. But Paul says, this gospel that I preach that has God's power, is God's power, has no racial boundaries, no ethnic boundaries, no mental boundaries, no boundaries. It's to be offered to all people, Jews and non-Jews. It's for the high and the low. It's for the rich and the poor. It's for the moral and the immoral. It's for the church kid and the one who's never heard about Jesus. Because the Bible says all of those people have sinned. In different ways, yes, in and to different degrees, yes, but all of them are guilty before God. And because of that, all of them are in need of a Savior. And the good news is the Savior is offered to every single purpose. Now think about what Paul is doing here. You know what's coming in Romans. You know what's coming in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3 in Romans. And he's finishing out his introduction here. And before he plunges into, the, into our sinfulness and condemnation, and he talks about pagans in in chapter 1, and moral men in chapter 2, and then all men in chapter 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Before he will take us down into the, the dungeon of, of man's depravity and this, this dank, dark place to show us how, how we are guilty, before he does that, he holds up a torch and says, you need this where we're going, because I'm going to bring you out of there, but, but remember this when it, when it gets ugly, because it's going to get ugly. 
And so he introduces the good news and says, that good news, this torch is going to go to all of these people I'm about ready to describe in the next three chapters. You can rejoice in the power of God to bring about salvation, and you should. But no matter how many tulip petals you marvel over, don't ever think that that limits the free offer of the gospel to all men. Calvin himself said, At the present day, God invites all indiscriminately to salvation through the gospel. But the ingratitude of the world is the reason why this grace, which is equally offered to all, is enjoyed by few. Let me interpret that for you. It's not God's fault. It's yours. <laughs> you reject the gospel. But if you believe, you should give glory to him because he's the one that brought that about, not because you're smarter than anybody else. That's what Paul's saying. You have somebody who who's lost, that, that you love, maybe, maybe somebody that you think is too far gone. God says, don't doubt my power to save. Don't doubt my ability to reach any man or any woman, any child, no matter, even, even Jews who think that they're religious or, or Romans who think that they, Greeks who think they don't need anybody, no matter the grossness of their sin, like homosexuals that are coming in the chapter, just keep sharing the message of the gospel with them because that's the only power you need and that's the only power you have. And you say, I don't doubt God has the ability. I doubt whether they'll listen. That's the right place to place, put the blame. But don't doubt God's ability to reach even them. I think God would say, if you're feeling that, you're not read in the gospel, or I have the ability to give ears to people who are deaf. I have the ability to give eyes to those who can't see. I have the ability to take a heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh. I have that kind of power. And that kind of power comes when the gospel is, is unleashed. Don't doubt my ability. I, I, I'm the able Lord. And that hope is to be shared and offered to, to all men. Remember that whenever you're witnessing, remember the gospel is unstoppable. It will accomplish God's purpose and it cannot fail. But you and I can. We can fail to bear witness. That's our job, to bear witness and stake our claim there and not add to it. But the basis of your assurance is that will, uh, it will accomplish exactly what, what God intends. Look at the second reason that, that he gives here. The second reason you should put your trust in the gospel is because it reveals God's redeeming righteousness. It's given by God. This righteousness is given by God. And it's granted by faith. Look at verse 17. For in it, that's the gospel, the gospel that's the power of God and the salvation that, that accomplishes what he intends, that's offered to all. For in it, you do it that way, for in it, the righteousness of God is, is revealed. It explains why the gospel is, is the power of God that brings salvation. The gospel is the power of God that brings salvation because the righteousness of God is being brought to bear through it. Uh, being revealed is, a, is, a, is an end times word. It's um, apocalyptatai. It, it's a technical term. 
you find in apocalyptical literature in the Bible. The word is used elsewhere meaning when God promises something in the past that's going to come in the future, it's the moment in which it comes. It's the, it's the moment in which it's revealed, the moment in which it breaks the dawn. It, it's, it's when God invades history by accomplishing a promise that he made. And Paul's saying in the gospel, the righteousness of God has, has invaded for the, for the sinner. And don't miss, it's the righteousness of God. God's the source. It's not your righteousness. It's God's righteousness. And I don't want you to miss a repetition here that you can as we break it down verse, verse by verse. Notice verse 16. There's the power of God. Verse 17 the righteousness of God, and then in verse 18, the wrath of God. All three of those are, are to be understood in a similar way. I mean, Paul puts them there. Power comes from God. Righteousness is brought by God. Wrath is at least from God. And they all express things coming from God. They all come from Him. And what comes from God through the gospel is His saving righteousness. What sinners need, what you need to be right with Him. His righteousness, righteousness that you don't have, comes from God in the gospel. And I don't want to get too technical on you here, but it's important. The word righteousness of God here can be taken in, in three different ways. And you need to decide which it is. I mean, it could be, I mean, is Paul saying it's attributive, like, um, like it's an attribute? The righteousness of God, meaning like God is righteous. When you think about God, he's righteous. Is, is that what he's saying is being re revealed here? God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel. It's revealed that he is righteous. Well, that's not good news at all. That's bad news. That's exactly what Luther had a problem with, because that's what he believed. Because that would mean every time that you heard the gospel... You'd be hearing about how God's holy and just, but you would have no solution whatsoever for the fact that you are, or not. We already know God's holy and that we're sinners. It's not good news for sinners. And just as a side note, be careful how you turn the, the, the facets of the gospel toward, toward people that you're sharing with. I mean, be careful applying alcohol whenever a person needs salve. I mean, a self-righteous man may need the turpentine of God's holy law, but the sinner who's already beating their breast, knowing that they need mercy, needs the robe and the ring of Jesus placed on them. I mean, you can see the way Jesus dealt with people differently in the New Testament. He, he lifted the head of the repentant adulteress, but, but he kicked the Pharisee in the teeth. The second way that it can be used, righteousness, is it's righteousness that transforms us, meaning that in the gospel we're now able to, to know how to become righteous, gain righteousness ourselves. But that's not good news either, because no matter how hard you try to gain righteousness, apart from God's transforming power, you're not going to get there. You probably tried it if, if you've been religious. The third way is correct. The righteousness of God that's revealed in the gospel, what's breaking forth is God's saving act where he, he intervenes and declares us something that we're not. He, he, he credits to us, to our account, his own righteousness. 
Isaiah 55 and 46 give us the idea. I won't have you turn there. Just listen. Watch how he, he uses these terms parallel. Isaiah 50, 51, 5. My righteousness is near. My salvation has gone forth. Isaiah 46, 12 and 13. Listen to me, you stubborn-minded, who are far from my righteousness. I bring my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will grant salvation in Zion and my glory for Israel. One more, Psalm 98.2. The Lord has made known His salvation, and He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of nations. Righteousness and, and salvation are parallel terms in the Old Testament, meaning they, they go together like railroad tracks, but they, they complement one another. And I think that's what Paul's drawing on here. He means God is bringing his, his righteousness to bear on man's sinful condition. His righteousness is what we need to, to bring about his salvation. And that's dawning, that's being revealed. And God reveals in the gospel how a man can be right with him. And, and he answers that next. Look, if you would, at verse 17. He says, For in it, that's in the gospel, the righteousness of God is, is revealed, it's, it's brought to bear, it's, His salvation comes by His righteousness being, being credited to your account, and, and you get that from faith to faith. Look at all the repetition, verse 16. Unto all who believe. Verse 17, from faith to faith. Look at the end of verse 17. But, but the righteous shall live by faith. Do you think Paul's emphasizing something here? The gospel reveals God's salvation that intervenes in the world and that, that work provides His righteousness to unworthy sinners and they obtain it by faith from beginning to end. It's righteousness given by God and it's granted to you by faith. It's, and it's His righteousness. Righteousness that's alien and not from within you but from God. It's forensic. It's a judicial declaration. It's passive, meaning it's a gift of, uh, from God in, in Romans 5.17. And Paul says it's from faith to faith. It's, it's emphatic. It's, it's for emphasis. It's highlighting the centrality of faith. It's like Psalm 84, 7, saying from strength to strength. Paul is saying that human beings are being transformed by faith. They're, they stand right before God by faith. Tom Schreiner. God's saving activity doesn't become a reality without faith. You can know all about it. You can sit on a pew beside people that, that understand it, that love it. Your faith is required. Your trust is required. Made possible by God, but faith is what links us to his work. Paul defined faith for us in chapter 4. What's faith? Sincere belief? I'm really, really sincere. Is that enough to save you? Really, really sincere about Jesus. It's part of it. Listen to how he, he defines faith for us in Romans chapter 4, verse 3. So listen to these words. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. His belief brought him the credit or, or the account of righteous. 
Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due. But the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Saving faith includes more than just mental assent, but it also involves trust, uh, a reliance on God. If Abraham is the picture of faith and the father of faith, Paul says, look at how he believed. He knew he was ungodly. But Abraham staked his whole future on God's promise and God's call to, to follow me. So we stake our eternal future on the same, the, the promise of the gospel. You trust in that. You put your full weight on that. And someone knowing the gospel eagerly shares it with us and we, we hear God's hear it and God's power is unleashed by it and that transforming power enables us to believe and in the, the saving act and the transforming work, God credits us with Christ's righteousness and it is faith that leans fully on that truth. And he says it's always been that way. It's the third reason. The reason you should put your trust in the gospel is because it's it was demonstrated by God in the in the beginning. The, the, the Old Testament is the example, and faith alone was the emphasis there. Look at the end of verse 17. As it is written, or just as it is written, but the righteous shall live by faith. That's a quote from Habakkuk 2.4. He's using it as an example. He's using it as, as an emphasis. And notice what he emphasizes. Whatever Habakkuk means... In that verse, it's about faith. And if you look at that passage, you go back to Habakkuk 2, you'll find the context is, is the prophet of God is crying out to the Lord because the Lord has told them that judgment is coming. And he's pleading with the Lord about how to escape the, the coming judgment. And God encourages him. God gives the answer, which is repeated here. The, the righteous, the, the one who's trusting in the Lord, those who have been declared that by God, will avoid judgment by faith. That's what he's saying. And with that, Paul connects his message to the Old Testament again. You remember in verse 2? Look back at verse 2. Set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And Paul says, Exhibit A, Habakkuk 2.4. Paul's point is salvation promised by God has never changed. It, uh, the timing of, of when, it, when it's going to be fulfilled has... It's now broken forth with the coming of Christ. It's dawn. But the way of salvation has never wavered. It's always been by sinners looking to God, by, by faith looking to the Lord's promises. That faith is centered on His Son, the coming one, if you're in the Old Testament, or in our case, the one who has come and is coming again. Paul says it's always been that way. Faith alone. And Alva J. McLean said that the, the entire gospel rests on Christ. He took these two verses and, and he went to other places in the New Testament where Paul uses those words to define Christ. He says the power 
First uh, Corinthians one twenty four. Christ is the power of God and wisdom of God. God. Uh, Colossians one fifteen. He that's Christ is the in, is the image of the invisible God. Salvation. Luke two thirty. Simeon took Mary's child, looked up into heaven, and said, My eyes have seen your salvation. Righteousness. 1 Corinthians 1.30. Jesus who was, was made unto us wisdom and righteousness. Faith. Hebrews 12.2. He's the author and the perfecter of our faith. Life. John 6.51, he's the living bread. Without Jesus Christ, you don't have any gospel or any good news because he fills every word with meaning. And Paul's eager to preach that message in Rome. You should be eager to share that message with, with others because as you share it, as foolish as it sounds to, to others, it is God's power. And it's, it's indestructible. It accomplishes things. And you'll know that it is whenever they believe. Paul says he's eager to press it, uh, preach it. Are you eager to receive it? Remember the testimony of my brother-in-law. We went from sitting on bar stools together to sitting in pews and revivals together side by side within a year. And I can remember I was saved and he wasn't, and his wife kept inviting him to church, and he finally acquiesced on Easter, right? That's when sinners go to church. Easter's okay. Nobody will make fun of me on Easter. And the message, he'd seen her life and heard the gospel before. Small Baptist church in West Virginia, and... He stood up, pastor stood up before he began to, to share and asked if there was anybody that had testimony. And one guy stood up and talked about how he had, he had uh, he'd been saved in tears, just how, how much Jesus had changed him. And then another guy stood up and, and, and talked about the beer joint that was right down the road. He said, I went by that beer joint, the just last night, on Saturday night, and I thought about the, the people that were in there and how I used to be in that beer joint, and, and I prayed for them, and I'm so thankful that I, that I know Jesus now. That was the beer joint that my brother-in-law and I used to go to. And he said he sat there, and he was so convicted that, that he could not wait. He was so eager to trust Christ, just listening to the testimonies with the gospel already saved. He couldn't wait for the sermon to be over so he could go forward in the altar call. He grabbed his wife and drug her, practically drug her down the aisle, and he's serving the Lord even today. That's the eagerness that God can do. I'm sure the pastor prayed and prepared, and rightly so, for the people that heard the gospel and he, in his sermon. And before he ever opens his mouth, God has already taken his gospel through a testimony and unleashed its power in my brother-in-law's life. How has God unleashed his power in your life? Somebody that you've watched be a true believer. Maybe in the sermon today, maybe in another sermon. Whatever it is, now's the time for you to respond to it. And you respond by faith. By saying, God, I believe, I trust, I don't know how, but I know it's true, and I put my full weight for all eternity on Jesus and Jesus alone. I need your righteousness, not my own, 
and you say you'll give it to me if I will trust in you, I trust in you now. God will unleash his power in you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel. What good news. I'm so thankful that it washed me clean. I pray even now, somebody listening, watching, somebody that listens or watches later, your timing and your way, they would repent and believe, even this morning. And I pray that you would help us as believers to to go forward and share your message with confidence, maybe with fear and trembling, but knowing the power is not in how we share, but in the message itself. May you be glorified and Jesus get the honor to this do his name. In his name we pray, amen.